So um, if you would, uh, let's bow together and uh, let's pray for our time in, uh, in the sermon this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. A God who wants to make himself known. So Lord, as we come to your word now, Lord, I pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts and open minds. Lord, that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to believe what you say. Give us grace to let go of what we need to let go of. Give us grace to go from here and do what we need to do. Lord, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit in this moment. That you would fill me with the Holy Spirit as I seek to serve and and be faithful to your word. And Lord, I pray that you would fill each of us with the Holy Spirit, that we seek to receive your word. Give us the illumination that comes only from the Holy Spirit, the power not only to understand, but to obey. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey as we know it today. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus calls the Apostle John to write to these seven churches. And In chapters 2 and 3, the section that we're in right now, Jesus gives John a message uh, that he has for each of the seven churches, and today we're looking at the third of those seven messages, the message to the church in Pergamum. Uh, But in this passage is not just a word for them, this is what the Spirit says to all the churches. And so with that, let's begin by reading Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17, and since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, the Holy Spirit says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I've titled this sermon, The Judgment 
that matters. The judgment that matters. Now, judgment is not a popular topic. We're told we're not supposed to judge. In fact, I think Christians are especially told it's wrong to judge. The truth is, though, we all judge. Even saying it's wrong to judge is itself a judgment. You're judging the person to be wrong who is doing the judging that you judge to be wrong anyway. We all judge. But not only that, we also all live for the judgment of others. We want others to judge us as acceptable, judge us as praiseworthy, judge us as worthy, judge us as valuable. And for Christians, this can be especially dangerous. It's easy for Christians to want the approval of the world. I was at a community event not long ago, and a a fellow pastor said to me, isn't it great to show people that Christians aren't weird? Well, yes, unless we get to the point where we're so not weird that there's actually no longer even any difference between how we are perceived and how the world is perceived. But the message to Pergamum reminds us of the judgment that matters ultimately. It reminds us of the danger of living for the wrong judgment, and it points us to the ultimate judge whom we should live for. My burden for us today from this message to Pergamum is that we would live for the judgment that matters, that we would live for the judgment that matters. I want us to see four aspects of what it means to live for the judgment that matters. First of all, if we're going to live for the judgment that matters, we need to submit to the judge. Submit to the judge. And we see this in verse 12. Jesus identifies himself in verse 12 as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In the vision that John saw of Christ in chapter 1, he saw this symbol of this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this is a symbol of Jesus' word by which he will judge the world. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In fact, as John sees uh, visions of the very end of history and the end times judgment, John's going to see again this picture come up. Revelation 19 and verses 11 through 16, there's this other vision of Christ at his second coming, in which Christ strikes down the nations with the sword of his mouth. Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, and he will judge all people according to his word. This judge is the one who is speaking to us in this message. We must listen to this judge. How would it change the way that you think about being a church if you continually remembered that the head of the church is a judge with the power of the sword ready to make war. Jesus 
is not a hippie spiritual leader who gives ambiguous teachings that you can kind of interpret however makes you feel good about yourself. No, Jesus has spoken. He has given us his inerrant word, and he will judge us based on whether or not we adhere to his word. Now, this judgment of Jesus the judge is both comforting and sobering. It's comforting because the judge is going to bring our enemies to justice. You know, Pergamum was a difficult place to live. Jesus basically calls it Satan's house. That's where this church was living. A believer named Antipas, as we'll see, had even been killed in Pergamum for his faith in Christ. But the church in Pergamum could be comforted knowing that one day the one with the sharp two-edged sword would come and strike down their enemies. Likewise, when we face oppression or are unfairly treated for following Christ, we can have confidence because Jesus will make everything right in the end. Even if we have to endure injustice for a time. But the two-edged sword cuts both ways. It is comforting, but it's also sobering. As comforting as it is to know that Jesus aims his sword at those who persecute us, we also need to see Jesus holding his sword of justice as he rules over us, his people. Jesus is going to go on to rebuke the church in Pergamum for not exercising judgment themselves. They had been tolerating false teaching among them when they should have been weeding it out. And Jesus is going to tell them, take care of this or I will take care of it myself. Take care of this or I'm going to handle it with the sword that comes from my mouth. And likewise, we need to remember as a church, we are accountable to Jesus, the judge. Jesus calls us to govern our church according to his word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. In the end, we will not, as a church, be judged for how well we followed best practices from the hot new publication on how to do church. In the end, we will not be judged by how popular our church was compared to the church down the street. In the end, we will be judged by how well we conform ourselves to the Word of God. We must submit to the judge if we are to live for the judgment that matters. Second, we need to stay loyal to the judge. We need to stay loyal to the judge. If we're going to live for the judgment that matters, we need to not only submit to this judge, but be loyal to this judge. Jesus goes on in verse 13 to praise the church in Pergamum for their faithfulness, for their loyalty. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. God's people often find themselves in places where it is difficult to be faithful to Jesus, where it is difficult to remain loyal to Jesus. Jesus describes Pergamum as where Satan's throne is is. 
And this is very similar to the vision that John's going to see in Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, 2, uh, John sees the dragon, Satan, give his throne to the beast. Likewise here, as Jesus describes this human government in Pergamum, he describes Pergamum as this place where Satan's throne is. Pergamum was the official center of the imperial cult in Asia Minor. As we discussed last week, in the Roman Empire, Caesar was worshipped as divine. He was regarded as more than just a man. And this also corresponds with Revelation 13. In Revelation 13, 12, John sees this uh, character, the false prophet, make the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast like the imperial cult made citizens of the empire worship Caesar. And this is significant for Pergamum because Pergamum was the first city in the province to build a temple to Caesar. It was, again, the, the religious capital of the province. It was where uh, the, the, the center of this imperial uh, cult, this, the Caesar worship, uh, existed within this culture. Uh, in fact, Caesar worship was at the heart of this culture of Pergamum. It's part of the very DNA of every aspect of life in this culture. In Pergamum, Caesar was Lord. And this made Pergamum a very difficult place to follow Jesus as Lord. When the culture around us expects us to give our ultimate allegiance to Caesar, we must hold fast to the name of Jesus above every other name. Now, maybe we don't find ourselves making little wooden statues or stone statues of world leaders and bowing down and paying homage. We're, we're much too civilized and evolved for that. But do you find yourself making men more than men? Do you find yourself making the worldly the ultimate? Often, we will find ourselves as exiles in this world, surrounded by a culture that wants us to make our allegiance to Caesar ultimate. But we must not allow allegiance to Caesar to come before or even come close to our allegiance to Jesus Christ. In our context, we must be careful not to deify our founding fathers. We must be careful not to talk as if the U.S. Constitution is a sacred document. We must be careful not to place our hope in a politician or a political party or a political movement. We must not act as if the fate of the world rides on an election or even on the flourishing of our country. Any love we have for our country must never come close to rivaling our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord. Our loyalty is not to a person of this world. 
Our loyalty is not to a party of this world. As Christians, our loyalty is not to a nation of this world. Our loyalty is to Christ alone. May we say with Paul in Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May we, like the church in Pergamum, be clear about where our loyalties lie, even if it's frowned upon by a patriotic culture around us. Jesus calls his churches to remain loyal to him even when the culture around us pulls us toward other loyalties. Jesus praises the church in Pergamum for doing just that, for holding fast his name and for not denying their faith in him. They did not relent in their faith even when one of their brothers in Christ named Antipas was killed for being loyal to Jesus and not Caesar. Even in the face of intense pressure, they stayed loyal to Jesus. And Jesus gives a hint at the reward awaiting those who hold fast to his name. Even as he describes Antipas, he calls Antipas my faithful witness. If you've been with us as we've been walking through Revelation, those words, faithful witness, might ring a bell because John used this as a title for Jesus himself back in Revelation 1.5. Jesus is the faithful witness. That is Jesus' name. And so what Jesus is doing here in this passage is he's taking a name that belongs to him and he identifies Antipas with that name. Jesus identifies with the one who identifies with him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, so everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Even when the church in Pergamum saw Antipas killed, they did not deny Jesus. They did not relent in their loyalty to Jesus. They stayed faithful to Jesus. They did not back down. In the end, Jesus is the judge. His name is the only name that matters. Allegiance to him is the only allegiance that matters. His opinion is the only opinion that matters. So may we stay loyal to the judge. Third, if we are to live for the judgment that matters, we must judge ourselves. We must judge ourselves. Even as we stand firm against pressure from the outside, pressure to be loyal to someone or something other than Jesus, even as we stand firm against this external pressure, we need to watch out for compromise on the inside. Jesus said in verses 14 and 15, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they, may, uh, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the church in Pergamum, while they were faithful to hold, the fast, hold fast the name of Christ, while they were faithful uh, to, to stay loyal to Christ, even in the face of intense pressure, they were tolerating false teaching inside the walls of the church. They were tolerating false teaching in their midst. And Jesus calls this false teaching the teaching of Balaam. And it seems that the Nicolaitans taught something similar. Uh, Balaam was a figure from Israel's history, and he eventually became regarded as sort of the prototype of all false teachers who came after him. Balaam was a prophet who we meet in the book of Numbers. And when Israel was wandering in the wilderness after the exodus, Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. But God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel. And while this attack from the outside was unsuccessful, Balaam did succeed at corrupting Israel from the inside. Balaam convinced Moabite women to seduce men of Israel. The Moabite women not only got the Israelite men to commit sexual immorality with them, they also got them to participate in the worship of their false gods. These Israelite men offered sacrifices to these false gods. They ate in their ritual feasts of worship. They bowed down to these idols of the pagan nations. And because of this, God judged Israel. He sent a plague upon them that would not stop until they purged themselves of those who had committed this idolatry. So they put the idol worshipers to death. And the plague stopped, but not before 24,000 people died from the plague. Well, history was repeating itself in Pergamum. While this church was not phased by external forces, they were being corrupted from the inside. They were tolerating false teachers who promoted sexual immorality and the worship of the false gods of Pergamum. In Pergamum at that time, there were these festivals to Roman deities that involved feasting and carousing and all sorts of immoral behavior. And the false teaching in Pergamum seems to be the belief that a Christian could participate in these activities and still be a faithful Christian. Yeah, you can eat the idol feast on Saturday night and still come take the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. You can have sex however you want to and still be a part of the bride of Christ. And the problem was that the church in Pergamum was just letting this teaching go unchecked among their congregation. And so, like God told Israel in the wilderness, Jesus calls the church in Pergamum to purge the evil from among them, or he will bring his judgment. Verse 16, therefore repent, if not I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. They were tolerating false teaching, and Jesus calls them to repent of their tolerance. If they didn't exercise judgment, then Jesus himself was going to come and judge those who held this false teaching with his sharp 
two-edged sword. Jesus rebukes the church in Pergamum for tolerating this false teaching among them. You know, an unpopular truth that the Bible teaches is that a local church is actually supposed to judge its members. Did you know that? We say judge ourselves. Jesus actually expects a local church to judge its members. Jesus is rebuking Pergamum for not having exercised judgment like they should. Now, let me be clear. What I don't mean is that we should constantly be walking around looking down on people and thinking how much better we are than everyone else. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is that we should, first of all, be clear about what the Bible says is right and wrong. That we should faithfully call one another to repent when someone is in sin. And that we should be consistently encouraging one another to pursue Christ and live in righteousness. You know, there's, there's many people who would say that we should be tolerant. And that judging is always wrong. But Jesus says otherwise. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches that he has given the local church the authority to bring people in and out of its membership, for instance. In 1 Corinthians 5, after confronting the Corinthian church about how they tolerated sexual immorality, Paul reminds them, you are to judge those inside the church. In fact, he said, purge the evil person from among you. And so it's incumbent upon us to ask, what kinds of cultural idolatry are we tolerating as a church? And then it's incumbent upon us to repent of any ways we are tolerating false ideas, false beliefs, false teaching among us. You know, the longer that we are in the world, the more tempting it can be to be part of the world. We naturally want to seem normal in the world. We don't want to look weird, right? But when our culture normalizes practices that God forbids, we have to choose between being normal or being faithful. The church in Pergamum needed to know, and we need to know, that following Christ means that there are, in their case, in our case, some events that we just can't attend, some feasts that we just can't go to, some places that we should just not darken. If attending an event leads to us participating in sin, we should not attend that event. If an event is celebrating someone or something in a way that only Jesus should be celebrated, we should not attend that event. If an event is celebrating something sinful, we should not attend that event. And therefore, as a church, we need to ask ourselves, will we let our brothers and sisters engage in worldliness unchecked, or will we love them enough to point them to the greater joy that is found in loyalty to Jesus? We must not create a culture within our church of normalizing worldliness. Instead, we need to create a culture where Christ-likeness is, celebrating, where, is celebrated, where in our church, in our culture, we celebrate when people are willing to give up 
popularity for the sake of Christ. We celebrate when people do the hard thing of giving up something that they would like to do in order to focus on sacrificing for Christ and living for him, being faithful for him. May the culture of our church be so distinct from the culture of the world that tolerating worldliness among us feels unnatural. May the culture of our church be so focused on pursuing Christ that it is perfectly normal to call out compromise and to encourage one another to forsake worldliness. As much as we might hear, don't judge, as much as we might hear that tolerance is uh, the, 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 the key value, we need to remember that the church is not a live and let live institution. The church is a Jesus is Lord institution. So may we judge ourselves to the glory of God. Finally, if we are to live for the judgment that matters, we must rest in the judgment of the justifier. Rest in the judgment of the justifier. If we will listen and submit to our judge and remain faithful to him, he will reward us. Jesus ends his message to the church in Pergamum with a promise in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers, who stays faithful to the end, will be rewarded. Everything we give up for the sake of Christ will be repaid tenfold. Every sacrifice we make for the name of Christ will be rewarded. What are these rewards? Well, first, hidden manna. Manna, so thinking back to the wilderness again, manna was the bread from heaven that God provided Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. It's what kept them alive for 40 years. And Jesus promises to the one who conquers future food, future provision that we can't see right now, but if we are faithful to him, we can be sure he will provide for us in eternity. Second, a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, obviously, this kind of explains itself, so I probably don't even need to explain it. No? Okay. Uh, Well, you're in good company. Uh, Basically, uh, scholars look at this and they say there's like 12 possible ways you can interpret this. And so just know, like, you're in good company if you look at that and you think, I'm not sure, am I supposed to know what this means? But let me see if we can't look at some of the details of this and uh, get an idea of what's going on here and why we should be excited about a white stone with a name written on it, okay? This image has multiple components to it. First, the color white. That color white comes up all throughout Revelation, and it's associated with moral purity. Uh, For instance, in Revelation 7, 14, those who are saved are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, so that's one component, this moral purity, righteousness, white. Second, this is a white stone. Well, so in that culture, in the the culture of the the Roman Empire in the, the first century, a white stone 
was sometimes used as a kind of a ticket into a special occasion, a passive, you know, you know uh, something that would give you admission to this special event, okay? Okay, white, white stone. Third component, this white stone has a new name written on it. Well, this idea is actually expanded on uh, just a few verses later in Revelation 3.12. Glance over there with me. Revelation 3 and verse 12. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, to the one who conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. So if we put these verses together, it seems that this new name that's on this stone is actually a name that belongs to Jesus. And actually, we've already seen something like this in this passage, haven't we? We saw it with Antipas. Antipas, by all definitions, conquered. So Jesus gave Antipas one of his own names, faithful witness. Okay, so how do we fit all of these pictures together? Well, we've already seen how in these messages to the seven churches, uh, the promises that end each of these messages are connected to the end of Revelation. And I believe the passage that ties all of these pieces together is, is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. For the one who resists the feasts of idols in Pergamum, there's a greater feast coming. A feast of hidden manna. A feast that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The one who submits to the judge will receive a white stone. He will be judged morally pure, righteous. And because that person is justified, declared righteous, he receives a ticket to the greater feast. He is worthy to attend because Jesus has endorsed him with his own name. These are promises that Jesus makes to the one who conquers. And remember, how do we conquer? According to Revelation 12, 11, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. This reward comes to us by the blood of the Lamb. This reward comes by faith 
in Jesus. If we trust in Jesus, he will satisfy us with true bread for all of eternity. Jesus said he's better than manna in John 6, 57 and 58. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. If we trust in Jesus, if we trust in the blood of the Lamb, we will live forever by His provision for us. We are washed white by the death of Jesus. Jesus died to cleanse us from our sins. We saw that in Revelation 7, 14, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. If we trust in His death for us, we are justified by the judge of the living and the dead. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the blood of Jesus that makes us worthy to be admitted to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the greater feast. Revelation 19.8 says, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Jesus is the one who grants it. Jesus gives us worthiness. Jesus gives us righteousness when we trust in Him. So if, if you want the feast... If you want the Christ, if you want the reward of being with the greatest treasure for all of eternity, trust, not in your performance, not in your works, not in your law keeping, trust in the blood of the Lamb to make you worthy, to justify you. Find your confidence for your eternal joy in Jesus who died for you. This reward comes by the blood of the Lamb, and it comes by the word of our testimony. This reward comes to those who don't just place faith in Jesus in a moment in time, but who hold fast Jesus' name, who, who do not deny his faith, as Revelation 2.13 says. So may we hold fast when we are tempted to care about the approvals of others. May we remember the one whose approval matters most. When we are tempted to find joy in earthly feasts, may we remember the one who grants us access to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we are tempted to let others fall into worldliness, may we remember that their greater joy will be found in the one who can satisfy them for eternity. And may we point them to Christ. May we hold on to Christ and fix our eyes on Jesus without letting go. May we rest in the judgment of the justifier. Jesus calls us to live for the judgment that matters. So may we submit to Jesus the judge, living for his approval alone, living by his word alone. May we stay loyal to Jesus the judge, holding fast to his name above all other names, not letting any other allegiance come close to our loyalty to him. May we judge ourselves, not tolerating worldliness, but creating a culture that points people to find joy in obeying Christ. And may we rest in the judgment of the justifier, trusting in his blood to make us righteous and clinging to him as we anticipate his reward. At the end of the day, 
you are living for someone's judgment. So live for the judgment that matters. Let's pray together. Father, may we remember that Jesus is the one with the sharp two-edged sword, the word that divides the indivisible, that sees the invisible. Lord, would we remember that and may we stay faithful to Jesus? May we care more about his judgment than any other judgment. Would that change the way that we live as a church? Would that change the way that we live our lives? Would it change what we are looking forward to in the future? But I pray that we would live for the judgment that matters, live for the approval of Jesus and rest in his blood that washes us white. Lord, may we not compromise with the world, but may we hold on to the name of Jesus and not deny our faith in him, even unto death. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.